the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Election Day is coming up next week, so we want to talk about what is going on with the election system here in Cuyahoga County. With us tonight, we have a member of the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, Jeff Hastings. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Nick, thank you for having me on. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, the Board of Elections, uh, you're in charge. All the focus is now on Election Day, and uh, we, we want to have a vote that's accurate. We want to have results that are fast, and uh, it's going to be a big, probably one of the most important elections we've had in, in many years. Uh, how is the Board of Elections doing? How, how are we shaped up for this coming Tuesday? Well, we're certainly ramped up. Uh, Nick, you're absolutely right. We want fair, accurate, and transparent elections. And I, along with my three other board members, are committed to that, along with a staff of over 100 individuals full-time and another couple hundred uh, part-time uh, temporary employees we have down there now. And then on Election Day, we'll have over 4,000 uh, precinct election officials working to see that we do have a fair, accurate, transparent election. So far, we've had over 300,000 votes cast. Uh, 258,000 absentee ballots returned, another 42,000 people voting early in person. We're going to see one of the largest turnouts we may have seen since 1900. I'm anticipating by uh, Tuesday, well over 55% of the votes will have already been cast uh, before uh, uh, the election uh, begins on Tuesday, November 3rd. You know, we, we talk about the election being fair, and uh, I'm not sure many people understand the fact that the Board of Elections, with all the employees, people being hired, that there is an effort to have a balance between Republicans and Democrats in, in different job positions. Can you, you sort of elaborate on that a bit, sort of give us a, Absolutely. a primer on what, what it's about? Absolutely, uh, Nick. A point well made. Everything is about parity, parity being R's and D's. Uh, are both balanced at every important aspect of the election process. From the Board of Elections, all 88 boards in this county are required to have two R's and two D's on the board. And the director and deputy director are balanced. So if a director in our case is a Democrat, Mr. Pilati, our deputy director is a Republican, uh, Chantil Soder. That means if your director is a D, then the chairman of the board has to be an R. And in this case, I have the privilege of serving in that capacity. It all varies. So if the director was an R, which was Pat McDonald a few years back, our chairperson was Ina Jo Chappelle, who's a Democrat. So parity uh, exists throughout the process. Our managers, if the manager is a D, the deputy manager is an R or vice versa. Uh, so uh, that takes place even at the polling locations, too. We want to have a balance of Democrats and Republicans present. Uh, which we've been able to do with a remarkable turnout of precinct election officials we've had for this election cycle. Do do we have enough uh, people volunteering for these jobs to to plus up the voting officials that are there? Do, do you have enough staff members? We do, and uh, and I give credit to Secretary of State LaRose, who's done a wonderful job recruiting precinct election officials throughout the state. 
Uh, we've had one of the largest turnouts I've ever experienced in my 13 years on the board. We have individuals that be the polling location. We have individuals that will be um, delivering the uh, memory sticks that will contain the votes on them down to the Board of Elections. We have voting location uh, managers, VLMs, that will be responsible for three or four polling locations to handle any matters that come up there. We have uh, sanitation officials now because of the COVID in all directions. I want to assure your listeners that if they choose to vote on Election Day, which I hope they do if they haven't already early in-person voting, that these will be very safe, clean, and um, uh, safe and clean facilities to vote in. We're going to have sanitation officials there. There'll be social distancing required and all the proper precautions will be taken. A big question about showing up at the polling place live uh, and the question of masks. Will there be masks available? Are, are voters required to wear masks? Well, it, it, my experience has been, and I, I think it's probably been years too, Nick, is everywhere I go in social settings, people are wearing masks. And yes, they will be asked to wear masks too at the polling locations. We'll have right. masks available should they forget them. But if, in the unfortunate situation where someone insists not to wear one, uh, we will uh, either provide them curbside voting away from the voting public and the poll or election officials, or they'll be have a, a, an area uh, within the facility where they'll be distanced uh, from anybody. Uh, so I don't think that's going to happen often, but if it does, we're prepared to uh, address it. You know, at the end of the day, oh, they have a constitutional right to vote, so we won't preclude them. Well, it's good because we also have a pandemic going on. And we all have to protect each other, so that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, questions with regard to uh, our ballots. I know everybody's watching the national news about uh, the question of voting and whether or not it's going to come off all right. Uh, there are some states, apparently, that are sending out unsolicited ballots. But, but here in Ohio, and especially in Cuyahoga County, you get an absentee ballot if you request it. And then if you request it, it'll be sent to you, and then you have to get it back. Uh, are, are, those have all happened already, I would assume. Do you know about how many absentee ballot requests there have been and, and how many responses so far? Yeah, as we speak today, uh, uh, Nick, we've got about 340,000 absentee applications uh, processed already, and 258,000 of those applications, all of the 340 have received their ballots, and 258,000 have been returned. So uh, well, well, well above half the individuals that are registered in this county or close to half the individuals have requested absentee ballot applications. Uh, those were sent out by the Secretary of State. Uh, independent parties can send them out. You can get an application off our website. So clearly, because of COVID and the interest in this election, uh, participation is high by the absentee ballot uh, process. And, and just to, to clear the record, so to speak, uh, this is Thursday where we're pre-recording, and this will be played Sunday night. So anticipate more ballots coming in uh, the rest of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday yet. So there's time from where we are. Those numbers are probably going to go up big time. They will be. And I encourage your listeners, if they should get half their ballots and complete it, they can drop them off at our drop boxes. There's one by the board. It's open 24-7. We also have a curbside drop-off that's consistent with the early in-voting person hours. And your listeners can go to our web page to find what those hours are. For example, earlier this week, those hours are 8 to 7 p.m., this through this week and limited hours on the weekend and from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., I believe, on Monday. But I collected ballots uh, down there, actually, with the bipartisan team as people drove by. It was a wonderful experience. People appreciate our efforts. But 
they are very interested to see those ballots getting into the uh, drop boxes. They'll take a photograph of you making sure it gets in there, which is uh, well within their right. It's a wonderful experience. So I would encourage your uh, listeners to either drop it off at the drop box or get it to their post office. As long as it's postmarked uh, by uh, Monday, November 2nd, it has up to 10 days after the election to come in and be counted. And I'm certain it will, because if you actually walk into the post office, they'll put the postmark on it right in front of you. Excellent, excellent. Well, you know, this is the heart and soul of this country, of our democracy, of our Constitution, that is going out there and voting. Uh, one, one question I had from a listener already uh, is, what happens in the situation where you're not sure whether you voted already or whether your ballot has made it in the mail or gets lost? The question comes up that they then go down to the polling place uh, there, is there such a thing as a provisional ballot? If so, what is it, and how does it work in this circumstance? There is a pro- such thing as a provisional ballot, and there you can correct any defects that may occur on a voter registration a card or a voter cannot produce ID. So let me give you an example. Some people will request an absentee ballot, and for whatever reason, don't get around to filling it out. So they said, I'm going to go down to vote on Election Day, and they will appear on Election Day. And, and if they come in, let's say it's my name's Jeff Hastings, and I say, I, I got an absentee ballot, but I didn't vote it. They'll say, that's fine, Mr. Hastings. We're going to have to do a provisional ballot for you, which means I fill out a ballot, complete it, circle it, but then it's put into a provisional envelope, and information will be set down there. And the reason we do that is then after the election occurs on November 3rd, our staff will check to see if Jeff Hastings sent an absentee ballot. If he didn't, then my provisional ballot will then be pulled out and counted uh, within the, uh, the time permitted after the election. If they found out, in fact, I did, because maybe I forgot or wasn't certain it got processed, then my provisional ballot will not be counted. So this is a way to ensure every ballot uh, gets uh, counted uh, fairly. So there are provisional ballots are good things because they allow us to uh, address problems that may occur on Election Day. Oh, well, thank you so much for explaining that. Uh, because I know the term provisional ballot goes floating around and people really... I'm not sure what the definition of that is or how it works, but uh, we, we don't want people voting knowingly voting twice, so they this will be checked by the board. Absolutely. And I want to add to Nick, your question about provisional ballots. They are counted regardless. So some people think, oh, provisional ballot won't be counted if the election results are, are not close. They're counted regardless. Uh, and so it's important to, uh, if you have to fill out a provisional ballot, please do, do it correctly. And if you do, uh, your ballot will be counted. Well, excellent, excellent. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break in a moment. We're talking to Cuyahoga County Board of Elections member, chairman of the Board of Elections, Jeff Hastings, uh, talking about what to expect this Tuesday for the election of 2020. A very important uh, election. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, we're talking to Cuyahoga County Board of Elections Chairman Jeff Hastings, and we're sort of going over what's happening here in Cuyahoga County for the election coming up Tuesday. Uh, Jeff, again, thank you for uh, being with us. Thank you. Uh, one one thing that I also hear questions about, people don't understand if these are supposed to be secret ballots, 
and they put their ballots in an envelope with their name and signature on it, uh, what guarantees do they have that people aren't going to be checking off their ballots to find out who they're voting for? Well, what happens is when that ballot gets in there, it's processed. First, we uh, remove it from the mailing envelope. It's in a privacy envelope. Check the information on the privacy envelope to make sure that that, that person's registered. And we do that primarily through uh, uh, signature identif- uh, signature validation. So we'll look and see Jeff Hastings' signature on the privacy envelope. We'll see, and this is all automated, we'll see that that signature matches. So then we have a machine that actually opens up the envelope, pulls out the ballot, and then is um, uh, put in a pile to be scanned through what we call the 850 scanner. The 850s can do about 30, uh, 3,000 ballots uh, uh, an hour uh, processing them. No one is looking, pulling out these and looking at, at, at what occurred. What we do is we take off the, the stub at the bottom to assure that that ballot, and we put it in the system to assure the ballot has been received by Jeff Hastings. And so he knows, and it's run and counted. The process is, you want to get it done, you comment it as fast as possible, but as accurate as possible. But no one is opening up these ballots and looking at them. They're putting them in a queue and running through the machine to be counted. You bring up an interesting point about uh, the counting of ballots. So on election night in Ohio, we're allowed to process these ballots as they come in. Some states, that isn't the case, and I'll talk about that in one second. But so these ballots, as they come in, we're processing them, and we're running them through the system. We're counting the ballots, but we're not tabulating them. And then what happens at 7.30 in Ohio, we can tabulate them on the closure of Election Day. So you'll see numbers floating up there about 7.45 to 8 o'clock that show about 50% of the people voting, and it'll have those results. And the results you're seeing are the early in-person voting results as well as the absentee ballot results. You're not seeing the election day results because those won't come until much later that evening. But in Ohio, uh, I'm, so you have an idea of maybe 50% of the people have voted, and if your candidate's up a big bit, maybe they'll continue to be up most of the night or vice versa. Uh, so that's a good indication of, of how the election's going. But we'll have our votes counted uh, pretty much by 2 or 3 o'clock, because we'll process the absentee we received that day, and, and we'll also have processed the in-person voting on Election Day. Let me just add, though, Pennsylvania, for example, their uh, state does not permit them even only opening the absentee ballots until 7.30 on Election Night. So uh, depending on how the election goes nationally, we'll be waiting five or six days to have Pennsylvania count their ballots uh, because they just can't get going till 7.30 on Tuesday night. Do you know whether or not, because, by the way, our, our shows, you know, people are listening to it outside of Cuyahoga County, it sounds like Cuyahoga County with the automation is going to be very efficient and very secretive. You're not going to have people matching up names and ballots for voting uh, history. But uh, do you know, are the other counties doing it the same way? Do they have the same automated equipment, uh, many of them? No, I think, uh, you know, Cuyahoga County is the 18th largest uh, voting district in the country. Uh, based on population. We're up there with Franklin County and with uh, Hamilton County, which are the largest ones here. And I'm not aware of others. We bought three of these uh, uh, envelope processing uh, pieces of equipment this year. I think we're one of the first counties in the state to do so. We added two more 850s. 850s are the high-speed uh, ballot scanners that we use for the absentee ballots. So we're ready to get this done as efficiently and uh, fairly and uh, accurately as possible, but without cutting corners. So uh, our staff has really gone ahead uh, of the curve here and and, and automated the the voting process. And you can go onto our webpage and see some of that equipment uh, at work. If if a person has requested and received an absentee ballot, 
but they decide they want to go in and vote live. They want to go to the polling place. They want to experience the the actual voting. Uh, what what should they do? Should they bring their absentee ballot with them? Should they destroy it, or is there anything nope. you would like to tell them? Yes, exactly, and that and that will be the case. We'll get thousands of people that'll do that for whatever reason. They don't need to bring their ballots in. Uh, they don't need to destroy their ballots. Uh, the the poll work, polling election officials can't accept those ballots. What'll happen is Jeff Hastings will come up and they'll say, "Mr. Hastings, you got an absentee sent to you." Said, "I know, I didn't mail it in." They'll say, "That's great. Here's a provision. You know, fill out your ballot. We're going to put it in a provisional envelope. Fill that envelope out, and then." Uh, within 10 days after the election, we'll verify that you didn't send in your ballot, and if you haven't, then we'll be uh, counting your provisional ballot. So the results we see on election night are what they call the unofficial results. You know, we have up to 10 days after the election to see the absentee ballots come in, as well as uh, review the provisional ballots. After those 10 days, uh, the staff will come to the board. We'll meet on a Saturday this year uh, at 9.30 in the morning, and um, that will be on the 14th. And the staff will come to us and say, Board, we have 30,000 absentee ballots that came in after the election and another 10,000 provisional ballots. We've reviewed them all in the last 10 days, and we're going to ask you to count 38,000 of them. And here's why the other 2,000 can't be counted. They're not registered. They put down the wrong ID. They already voted. And then we'll look at that information. We'll authorize them to process the absentee ballots and the provisional ballots according to their report, and this is all documented. And then three days later, we're going to meet on the 18th, for four days, and they'll give us the official results, because by that time, they've run all the ballots through again on Election Day, as well as those absentee ballots and provisional ballots. And that's when we certify to the Secretary of State what the actual count is up here. And every county will have to do that on the 18th of November. And the uh, actual processing of absentee ballots, we're talking about the delay uh, for you know, days after the election, like 10 days. Uh, with the uh, with the ballots or with the envelopes being sent, does it matter uh, that the postmark is on it? Does somebody check the postmark date to make sure it's postmarked at least by election day? Absolutely. Well, it needs to be postmarked actually the day before election. Your ballot can be dropped off on election day up till 7:30 that evening, and our uh, we'll have uh, our uh, drop boxes available for that. But it has to be postmarked the day before November 2nd. And yes, we will be looking for the postmarks. We've actually bought equipment. Uh, to find faded postmarks on there uh, to make absolutely certain that uh, it was postmarked by November 2nd. Wow. Now, how many voters do you expect to turn out with absentee and uh, at polling places, the total number of voters here in Cuyahoga County? I know our, I, I believe the total uh, population of Cuyahoga County is like a little over 1.2 million thereabouts. And uh, yeah, about, how many of those are registered ahead, voters? Well, how many of those yeah, are registered eight. voters? Right. And I think close to 850,000 of them are uh, registered voters, Nick. And of the 850, I'm anticipating about a 70% turnout. Um, so it may be a little higher than close to 600,000 uh, votes to be counted on Election Day. And, and as I told you already when we were talking, uh, we've uh, probably processed close to 300,000 of them. So we're halfway there already. The. Uh... I know people who don't want to watch TV because there's a, well, they'll watch TV. Everybody's going to be watching TV on election night. But uh, as the different results are going up, uh, tell us about the uh, the Internet service that the Board of Elections has and how you can keep track on the up-to-the-moment 
re results that are being reported, not just for the president's race, but for all the issues and for all the candidates running. Right. Thank you, Nick. That's an excellent question. So when a person casts their ballot on election day, that there's redundancy in the system. One, the ballot is in the scanner once it's processed. Number two, the scanner itself has a memory in there that counts the ballot. And number three, we have a memory stick that actually records the votes. And so what happens on election night is those memory sticks are, are picked up as, and put safely in a bag by partisan teams and taken down to the Board of Elections. Of about 975 uh, uh, precincts uh, to to uh, to process, and each of those precincts might have four or five scanners. So we have a few thousand scanners, excuse me, memory sticks that we have to process. My point being is those memory sticks then are put in independent standing um, uh, computer uh, uh, hard drives, and 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 that's where the tabulation takes place. Those computers are not connected to the Internet at all. Then there's a direct line from our offices down to the Secretary of State's office that transmits the vote totals um, that have already independently been placed on our hard drives up here without any Internet connection. To pick up on your question, what we also have is a software program that takes those results that we do put into another computer and, and will broadcast those results over our webpage. So on election night, uh, your listeners can go to the webpage and see how their candidates are doing in, in local, state, and countywide races or issues. Outstanding. Well, your work is definitely cut out for you. Uh, election night, and this is something that uh, you're working 365 days a year at coming to this big climax on Tuesday night. So, uh, Jeff Hastings, chairman of the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, thank you so much for not only your service for what you're doing, but also for joining us tonight and explaining some of the stuff to us. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Nick. My pleasure. My pleasure very much. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the uh, next two segments, we're going to be talking to State Senator Matt Dolan uh, about what's going on as we're so close to Election Day now. Uh, Senator Dolan, thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nick. Thank you. Well, this is, uh, and thank you, and I tell you, this is a certainly strange time. This is one of the most remarkable election periods that uh, I think I've ever witnessed, where we have so much engagement by so many people. Uh, what are you finding? How are uh, people uh, out there, and what are they concerned about right now as you're talking to them? So, uh, yeah, it certainly has been a strange year and a strange election year. But when it boils right down to it, the same issues that you would expect in any election year uh, you know, have surfaced to the top, and that is the economy and safety and education. Now, what, you know, tied all through that, of course, is COVID and, and you know, how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to manage it? Are we shutting down again? Those, those concerns and anxieties. First of all, we're not shutting down again, and we can manage our way through it. We just have to be personally responsible. And there is, you know, whether, whether it's a vaccine or therapeutic, that's all coming. And I think people are beginning to understand it. That's coming. But at the end of the day, do I have a job? Can I rate? Can I provide for my family? Can I provide quality schools for my child? Uh, 
And, you know, am I safe? Can, can I, you know, do I live in safe areas? So, you know, it's, it's, it always boils down to really those three items. And, you know, that's where I spend a great deal of my time as a state legislature, making sure we have a strong economy and quality schools uh, and, you know, safe place to live. So I, I feel comfortable that, you know, the issues that we work on are the issues that are important to folks uh, as we head into Election Day. Uh, since they're, they're interested in the same things, and I, I know that COVID is one, uh, education is another, the economy is a big thing. Uh, with regard to schools and education, how is that looking from the state perspective? How are we doing? So, uh, you know, every year, every two years we do a budget, and uh, everyone wants to, to make sure that the state contributes uh, more money to their schools so that we can have relief with property taxes. Um, you know, at the local level, you know, as we go through this virus, we are looking at uh, the government made some cuts to K through 12. But uh, I, I thought the cuts to our schools in this area were disproportionately disproportionately cut, and so I fought hard to get those cuts severely reduced because you know we can't just bear the brunt of of these cuts because we will have to face higher taxes at the local level, which is not where we want to be. I think as we go through the, you know, what, why I want to win is so I can have a voice in making sure that we reflect that the state has a responsibility to pay for the base cost of education and uh, that the, the base cost should be supplemented by local property taxes, not sustained by it. And so I think you're going to see a trend in that direction um, and, and uh, you know, try to get more, more dollars flowing back to schools because it's the administration and the teachers, they all do a great job. Uh, but we, what we don't want is to, to bear the cost so much at the local level that we really tax ourselves out of, uh, out of homes. We tax ourselves out of business. That, that's, that doesn't produce quality schools either when you're when you're too high of a tax uh, at the local level. You know, as you're explaining uh, education or talking about education costs, uh, with the COVID-19, we're in and out of virtual instruction, remote learning, and that kind of thing. Uh, can we tell whether or not uh, it's costing more money or less money? Are we saving anything by doing virtual instruction? Or are we spending about the same? So right now, I would say we're spending, uh, in terms of school foundation dollars, we're spending about the same. Uh, and that's because about 83 to 86 cents of every dollar goes to teacher salary benefits and uh, you know, health care and retirement. So those costs don't go away. Those are fixed costs, whether they're teaching remotely or not. As it relates to overall spending, I would say it's up because a lot of the CARES dollars that were, were flowing to schools are being spent to prepare for, you know, online learning and in-person learning because they need, you know, hand sanitizers, maybe some uh, handless faucets, uh, plexiglass at the lunch tables. So there are some COVID, direct COVID-related expenses that are being spent now that um, some some have short-term value, and that is in, in keeping people health, but 
some have long-term value too in the equipment and technology that schools are purchasing uh, so that they can communicate with their students whether they're in person or at home. And, you know, that allows for, you know, the snow days should become a thing of the past because, because they can just convert now to online learning. If somebody is ill, uh, they don't just miss a day anymore. They can convert to online learning. So there is some long-term benefit uh, to the spending that's going on right now uh, that will help schools, you know, teach their kids, you know, what, you know, no matter what the circumstances are. Right, right. Things are, are changing and giving us new uh, new abilities that we had available but just weren't using, and now we're using them. With the current surge in the virus, uh, what, what kind of economic concerns are there that we may have to slow the economy down or at least slow retail activity down because of uh, the virus and the need for separation and masking and that kind of thing? Well, I'm hoping that we don't need to do that, that we don't want any government interaction in that end. And, uh, you know, I've been working with the governor and in some cases, you know, uh, challenging the governor that we can't close our economy down. But we can't also ignore what personal responsibility we have so that, A, we stay safe, but B, we keep our economy open. And that is wearing a mask. You know, don't turn the mask into a political issue. It allows our economy to stay open. It allows you to go into retail. allows kids to go to school. allows parents to go to work. It allows restaurants to be open. And to maintain that social distance. You know, Make sure that if you're around somebody who's not a regular part of your household, you maintain that distance. Uh, those are the things that if we continue to do uh, we can manage our way through the virus. If we decide not to do that, if we decide to continue to have mass gatherings where the, they are shown to be super spreaders, then the virus is going to get to a point where consumer confidence will be so low, people won't go to the stores. They won't go to the restaurants and, and do all the things that they can do. Uh, and so either way, we're going to be put ourselves in a position where our economy slows down. We control that not happening. We control that. Just exercise some personal responsibility, and and we can get through this without without devastating uh, our economy. Uh, you know, I think if you look to Cuyahoga County and the concerns that's being raised, you know, what, you know are we purple or are we not purple? Uh, first of all, going to purple just is a stress test. It's not it's not a penal system. It's a stress test. It says that the result of our virus spread, we're putting undue burdens on our hospital and healthcare system. That's what going purple means. doesn't mean we're shutting down. But it also is an indicator that we aren't doing something right. And in Cuyahoga County, what we're not doing right is we are having uh, gatherings uh, outside of households that are causing hotspots, which cause the spread of virus. So it's not the result of going to work. It's not the result of going to school. It's not the result of going out to dinner. It is in-home events. It is funerals and weddings, you know, where we have to just exercise better caution. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but we control the ability where we keep our economy open. Just exercise personal responsibility. Respect people's individual health. You know, from the health experts, we hear that if everyone did what we're talking about, and that is uh, 
taking care of themselves, assuming personal responsibility, wearing masks and being careful, that we would slow down the spread significantly. And this is a waiting game. It's a waiting game for a, uh, a vaccine. It's a waiting game for better treatments. The, do we have any idea as to a quantification as to how many people are are fighting this and how many are not? But before you answer that question, we have to take a short break. So I don't want to start this big topic at this point. We want to know uh, how many people are fighting this, and if so, is that hurting us? We're going to take a short break. We're talking to State Senator Matt Dolan. Uh, about the issues that are facing all voters right now as we come up to this election day in 2020. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for Night. We're so pleased to have with us State Senator Matt Dolan, uh, who's also running for re-election uh, this election day. And he's here to talk to us about what's going on in the electorate, what, what we're worried about, what we're doing. And prominently in that discussion is COVID. So, Senator Dolan, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Now, during the last uh, segment, we were talking about personal responsibility, and we see it in the news all the time. Depending on what news channel you're watching, either there's no we've, – we've turned the corner, there's no virus, uh, we're, we're done, and people don't wear masks. Or on the other side, uh, that you know we're, we're going through a surge right now. Is there any way that you've heard of that we're quantifying – uh, what percentage of our population here in Ohio are, let's say, anti-maskers or no-maskers versus masking people, to, to make it overly simplistic? Yeah. So I don't have raw numbers to, to, to that, but I do have numbers that suggest that events where people are gathering unmasked uh, are the source of the virus spread. You know, the virus is still here. The virus hasn't changed one bit since the beginning, once it arrived on our shores. Our ability to deal with it has changed. And we are all exhausted. We are all tired of it. We wish it would all go away. We wish it was a magic date, which we could say, okay, now it's done. But it's not. So it's a combination of people who are making a personal decision not to wear a mask for whatever reason. And it's it's we've let our guard down a little bit. We, we are tired of it, and we don't want to wear a mask. And it's just a backyard barbecue with 20 people. What's the big deal? Well, the the deal is is that you don't know that that two of those people aren't asymptomatic and have the virus and spread it, and then and then it continues to spread. So I don't know the numbers of who does and who doesn't. I don't even want to assess motive as to why they don't. It's pretty clear, though, that if you don't, you are more likely to spread it. You're more likely to get it, but you may not have symptoms, but you definitely are more likely to spread it. So to your premise, yes, if we all exercise personal responsibility, we would, we would contain the virus to a point where it would no longer have any hosts and it would naturally die off. Now, that's a long time. Before that, 
we are going to have therapeutics and we are going to have a, you know, a vaccine. Well, let me take that sort of one step further to sort of reduce it to uh, maybe something that will help encourage the economy, I think, and that is the sense of safety. Get the economy to maintain our our American lifestyle to the maximum under these circumstances, we have to feel safe. Now, uh, we talk about these uh, these meetings, these family meetings, these barbecues, weddings, and so on, that we can call spreader events, maybe. Uh, for people who avoid those, people who do wear masks and they do limit their, their social outings to minimum and, and keep things down, are, are they really safe? And, and is that good for them? So they're doing it. Are they rewarded by probably not getting the virus? Well, that's a great question. That's probably better asked of a, of a medical. So I'm giving anecdotal on what I'm reading on my own and, and as part of any, um, uh, you know, sessions that I'm a, a part of. Um, the answer is yes. And how I can justify that answer is, very, very few cases are being traced back to daily activity. That is going to school. That is going to work. That is even going to restaurants. Um, those aren't the source of the spread, going to a retail establishment. And if you go to those establishments, you are masked up because it is not required to be masked up. And to your point, the employers want you to be masked up because it does provide a level of consumer confidence that it is safe to be here. We are keeping it clean. You are exercising individual responsibility. Please come and patronize our store, our restaurant, our business. So anecdotally, yes, there, there is because those aren't the sources of the spread. I'm comfortable in agreeing that if you social distance, wear a mask, keep per personal hygiene up, you are not subject to getting, you are less likely to get the virus. Well, that, that seems to make common sense, and we all have to do that. And I've been hearing of fewer and fewer confrontations between people who are not wearing masks and those who are wearing masks, at least here in northern Ohio. Uh, that hasn't been making the news if they, that is occurring. But uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're, we're talking about Election Day coming up, and you're out there conducting a campaign atypical because of COVID. What is it like campaigning during a pandemic? Yeah. There has to be a, a whole new set of uh, methods. Yeah, and, it's, uh, it, it, it is uh, it's different for a candidate because um, you, you don't get a chance to meet with people. So we went through an entire summer of campaign season without a parade, without community days, uh, festivals. Um, so there, there was no group meetings. Uh, there are various clubs that invite candidates in so you can go speak and, and explain why you deserve to be elected or reelected. Those those clubs didn't meet. Slowly in the fall, they started meeting, but, but over Zoom. So spend a lot of time on Zoom. Um, and, you know, those are they're helpful, but it's not the same as being there. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time, and I have spent a lot of time going door to door because that's where the voters are. So I wear a mask. I put the literature on the door. I ring the doorbell. I step back. 
I let them come to the door and we're six feet apart. You know, I, I, it's a handless transition with the literature. But that's the only way you can go see where the voters are and what's on the voters' minds and, and things that you can help them with. So it's been difficult. Um, it's a little unknown uh, because you don't have the, the gatherings, if you will. You don't even have that, you know, those rallies where everyone in the room either voted for you already or are going to vote for you. But, you know, you, they, they give you that extra boost of energy that, that, you know, you can finish off the last week and let's get it done. And none of that is happening. So it is a quiet, slow, monotonous, get out and meet the voters one at a time. And uh, and then, of course, wow. raise the dollars so you can get on TV and, and, and in your mailbox. We, we've done that. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's been different. But, you know, you gotta you got to adapt. If you don't adapt and complain, you lose. So we adapted. Well, that's it. Well, you know, no one wants to hear a complaint. They want to hear a get-it-done attitude. Uh, so right. people understand the state Senate district uh, is a, a pretty hefty district compared to your state representative. How many communities and approximately how many residents do you have within your uh, Senate so, district? Yeah, so each Senate district is made up of three House districts. So I represent um, 28 communities and two townships, all within Cuyahoga County, but not all of Cuyahoga County. It's sort of the U surrounding um, from Lyndhurst East all the way over to Bay Village and Rocky River. And it's about 362,000 uh, people. And of those 362,000 people, 250,000 of them are registered to vote. So it is a highly um, informed, highly engaged uh, Senate district, which I like because um, it's challenging and, and people pay attention to what we're doing and they have strong beliefs about what we need to get done for the betterment of our state. And uh, that's why you go out and meet them, because they have good ideas. Well, so I, beginning have of the... peers, uh, oh, go ahead. I have some peers, because when I'm in Cuyahoga County, people will say, wow, this is such a big district. And then I'll say, yeah, but I have some peers that have 11 counties to make up their 360,000 people. So in comparison, while it's a big district for this county, it's a you know manageable district compared to some some other places in the state. At least a bit more compact, but 360,000 people uh, without parades, without uh, having groups of people able to come over and actually see you and talk to you. Uh, you, you do have to do a lot of work to make up for that difference. I could see yeah. that happening. Well, anyway, State Senator Matt Dolan, like to wish you well on your election uh, run coming up here on Tuesday. Good luck to you. And thank uh, you very hope much. To have, hope to have you back on again and talk about uh, what's in the future for the state of Ohio from the state Senate standpoint. Well, I, uh, these these last 24 hours, I work hard, so I'll be in a position to be able to come back as state Senate. So thank you, Nick. Well, very good, Matt. Good luck to you. And thank you for listening tonight. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea.